Good morning, church. That's good. I like to hear you. It is great to be with you. If you would take your Bibles, we are in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. My wife asked me, where are you preaching this week? What passage? And I said, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. If you're in one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, the great eight of Romans, to be able to say these are some of the greatest verses in the greatest chapters means this sermon should preach itself. I'm just here to enjoy it with you. But we are in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. What I want to do is I just want to read it, and then I want to pray. And then I anticipate the Lord will use His Word to change our lives. So let's, let's read. And if you would, with me, would you read along with me all these two verses? It's a short piece, so we can read it together. But let's read it out loud, beginning now. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray. I pray in this stillness of this moment that you would take our hearts and cause them to find rest in you. We need you more than we need anything else. And the greatest news in all of the world is that your steadfast love is enough to satisfy every longing we will ever have in our hearts. And so we pray, Psalm 90.14, right now, Father, satisfy us early in the morning with your steadfast love in order that we might be a people who are filled with joy and gladness all our days. Father, we need you. And we thank you that you are for us. And if you can for us, if you are for us, then there's nothing else that we need. And so, Father, we ask that you would convince our hearts today that you're for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean that you are for something? You're for something. Well, you hear it in regards to sports a lot. Olympics, you know, I'm for the U.S. I'm pulling for this individual. And, you know, because the Olympics come around so few, we don't follow a lot of these sports. To say that you're for these Olympic sports really doesn't mean very much, right? I mean, you pull for them, you cheer for them, but to say maybe you pull for or you are for the Carolina Panthers, that might mean something different, right? Because you might have a jersey, you might know stats, you might be invested in who they recruit, and some of you are like, I don't care. But if you're for them, that's a different level of for. My question, though, is what do you think when someone says, This husband is for his wife. This parent is for his children. This friend, they are for that friend. When you bring the personal component, the intimate component, the I'm right next to you component, it means something totally different. For you. I asked two of my kids, if I say somebody is for you, what does it mean that they are for you. One child said it means they uh, support you. Or it means that they'll come and defend you if somebody's attacking you. They knew what it meant that I said somebody was for you. Another child said they're committed to you. They have your back. They consider your needs above their own. They're for you. What does it mean that somebody is for you? It means they know you. It means they want to be with you. It means they are your physical and sometimes emotional support. They believe the best about you. They forgive 
you quickly. They sacrifice for your needs. They are all in. They are for you. Today in these few words of Romans 8, 31 and 32, we read some of the most shocking words in all of Scripture. Not hyperbole, not overstatement. God is for us. He's for us. Can we say it together? God is for us. You're going to say it a lot today, so get used to it. It's a confession. Confession of every follower of Jesus. God is for us. He's for us as individuals, but even greater, this word is plural, He's for us as a people. He's for us. These are some of the most powerfully precious words that we could read in Scripture, but they're powerful in part because they're made to a people who in their past were not tender towards God, but dismissive towards Him. They're made to a people who were actively against Him. And yet, for some mysterious, strange reason, we are told He is for us. For some of us who are pretty stuck on ourselves, of course He's for us. I'm great. For others of us who are self-condemning, there's no way He's for me. I'm too rotten. The mystery here is our God is for people who were not for Him. He is for people who are not for Him. So today we get to stare at two verses. I like preaching two verses rather than like two pages of the Bible because it's really complicated to do that. When we preach these two verses, today we're going to answer the question, how do we know God is for us? How do we know God is for us? Three main things. Look at Romans 8. Number two, God is for us. That's the all caps portion. It's God who is for us. And three, the cross tells us where to look to see that God is for us. The cross tells us God is for us. Now, when I was growing up, I wasn't a huge candy guy. I was more of like a pastry kind of, I like cakes and sweets, those kind of, still do. But there was one candy I liked growing up, and it was a Jolly Rancher. Now, I don't know the origin of that name. It's kind of a weird name. You just think about it, like Happy Cowboy. I don't know what that means. Like Jolly Rancher. Name this little hard piece of candy that had all these flavors. Like, I love Jolly Ranchers. Now, Jolly Ranchers, although they were odd in name, you would put them in your mouth, and you were not supposed to chew that beast. Because that thing was hard as a rock. And you'd like break every tooth that you had in your body. But what you were supposed to do is you are supposed to put it in there. And it was supposed to fill your mouth with flavor over time. And that's what made it digestible. It was over time with the Jolly Rancher. That's this passage. This is hard candy. This is something that we need to sit and soak in and meditate on. For some of you who, as we tried to push this idea of we need to be in God's Word, some of you did that shred Bible reading plan where you tried to read through the Bible in a month. I was just so encouraged where some people did that and just the stories of how they met with the Lord. Others of you are taking the slow, steady route, trying to read through the New Testament in a year. Praise God for you and your labors to sit and to rest with Jesus. But this approach today, is to sit and to understand what these two verses mean. Like Jolly Rancher candy sits in the mouth. Because the goal is not to get through Romans. The goal is to commune with God. Can I tell you, like, I don't know if you get it, but God promises that what's happening right now is not natural. It is supernatural, meaning God is here with us. He's here in a unique and precious and powerful way with His church when they gather in ways that He's not when we are simply alone. He's with us when we are alone in special and precious and powerful ways. But God is with us right now. And that's why we open His Word because we want to commune with Him and to know Him. We need to behold Jesus. So, beholding Jesus is not a pit stop at NASCAR. 
It's something where you've got to sit and be still. Eugene Peterson says, slow, soul work is slow work. So that's what we're doing. So let's look. How do we know God is for us? Look at Romans 8. So let's look. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Just sit there for a second. What then shall we say to these things? It means that something that's just happened up above is so wonderful that something has to be said. Our mouths got to speak. What shall we say to these things? The assumption is we've got to say something. This is too good for silence. Great things evoke great responses. A response is needed. I've got a good friend, a pastor friend. He's actually a friend in uh, Tampa, Florida. I was just with him. And as he was there, as I was there with him, one thing that I know about my dear brother is that he knows how to eat. He does. If I'm wanting to know where to go to eat, I will talk to my dear friend and I'll say, hey, where can you, and, and you just, he's just like, oh, Sean, have you never eaten there? Like all of a sudden, like the, the anticip- I see, I see him get this way about three things. Jesus, his family, and food. And it's just like, have you, have you like seen, have you never been there? And it's like, he's so excited, he wants to share it with me. So I'm just like, okay, bro, I want to know what you think about this or that. For me, when I'm sitting down and eating, you know I like something just because it's like, mmm. You know, it's just, mmm. You know, like all of a sudden there's something that comes out because it's just so good. When something is so good, something comes out. And that's what's happening right here in this passage. And what he says is this, the something that's so good that evokes confession, some eruption of confession, it is summarized in this phrase, God is for us. He said, I'm telling you that what we've just read could be summarized in God is for us. And if he's for us, then who can be against us? The who can be against us part is taking us further. The God is for us is telling us that's what we just read. There is something about the verses preceding that cause the reader to erupt in God is for us. And the last time we have seen some type of eruption like this is the end of chapter 7. The end of chapter 7, you know the the verses where he says, man, I hate that I, I can't stop sinning. It's like I do the very things I don't want to do. And then you hear these verses. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the last eruption. We get it. Thanks be to Jesus that he's come on the scene and he's invaded my life. And he's the one that doesn't allow sin to rule over me. Thanks be to Jesus. And now the next one we get is Romans 8.31. God is for us. He's for us. So that means... That basically everything in chapter 8, chapter 8 verse 1, all the way to now, is meant to cause us to say, God is for us. Can we say that together? God is for us. You're going to say it a lot. Get ready. So, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a confession of the Christian. So many times we view confession as only the confession of sin. The confession of sin is good and right and necessary. But a Christian doesn't just confess sin. They confess their faith in Jesus. They confess his beauty and his sufficiency. They confess out loud that Christ is who he says he is. And that's what we're doing today. God is for us. It's the confession of the believer. You want to know how? You can know God is for you? Take a brief trip with me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how you know God is for you. He says Jesus is the shelter from the condemnation that our sins deserve. That's how you know God is for you, is that you will no longer be condemned for your sins. How can that be? Romans 8 verse 2. 
The spirit of life has set us free from the law, the power of sin and death. We've been set free, therefore there's no condemnation. We know God is for us. How did he do that? Verse 3 of Romans chapter 8. It says, God did what the law could not. External rules cannot change the heart inside. Jesus had to come. He condemned sin through the death of His Son. Our sin placed upon Jesus. He died in our place. He was condemned that we might get the banner of no condemnation. That's how you know God is for us. He sent His Son. Romans 8 verse 4, there's a new orientation about the people of God. We walk now according to the Spirit, and we are not controlled by the flesh. And then it says in Romans 8 verse 5, your mind now can be set upon the Spirit and not on the things of the flesh. And that means there's a promise for you of life and peace. This is how you know that, say it with me, God is for us. Now, if you acknowledge your sin, trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins, if you receive the free gift of His righteousness as your clothing, then the Bible says in Romans 8.8, you are pleasing to God. And you know why he says you're pleasing? Think of a smile on his face. Think of a warm embrace. Think of he wants to be near to you. You are pleasing to him. Why? Because Christ is in you. And you are covered in his righteousness. Fulfilling all that the law demands. That's how you know that God is for us. Romans 8.11 The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, giving life to your body. How do you know that God is for you? Because the Spirit of God lives inside your heart. Romans 8.13 The Spirit empowers us to put to death the deeds of the body. That means sin's trying to kill you, but the Spirit is killing sin within you. Greater is He that is in you than he that's in the world. God's for you. Every one of this is meant to be a hammer blow, a hammer blow, a hammer blow to what is really going through your mind most often, which is, I don't think he's for me. How could he be for me if the suffering is so acute? How could he be for me if so many people seem to be against me? How can he be for me with the internal dialogue that's going on in your brain when nobody else knows it is, I'm horrible, I'm worthless, I'm no good, he would never love me. We know that there are so many things, so many clouds that come in that, that just say the opposite. And every one of these are meant to be just a hit every time, a hit every time to the negative self-dialogue so that we would hear over and over, not the trash we're saying in our minds, but we would hear what God says about us. I'm for you. I'm for you. Romans 8.14 says, the Spirit of God has made us part of God's family. Romans 8.15, He has crushed the fear of rejection, the fear of being unloved, and He has made us His children. And our adoption grants us such intimacy with God that we call Him Father, and He loves us. Dear friends, I get, the, I get it. You think at times this is not my experience because the verse says, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> Your brain is like, I can tell you a lot of things that can be against me. Let's just start. There's plenty of people. That's your experience. What good is God being for me if all this happens to me? The pain is too great. We get cynical. We know that friends can turn and family can be against us. And sometimes those in the church, sometimes those outside the church, sometimes our spouses, sometimes our kids, 
Sometimes we turn against ourselves. <laughs> Who can be against us? Really? I understand the cynical mind. I understand the hurting heart. But I want you to know, it gets worse before it gets better. God was for His own Son, and He didn't protect Him. His own Son died at the hand of His Father. If that's the kind of God for us, that I don't want that, do I? Unless it's actually the greatest news in all the world. Because God was against His Son so that He would never again be against us. He was against His Son so that He would never be against His sons and daughters. You say, but it feels so hard. The suffering feels so acute. We stare at our pain and it feels impossible. But what Paul is doing over and over in Romans 8 is he is saying, do not stare at your pain. Take your pain and stare at me. Stare at what I'm doing. And as you do that, verse after verse is like a hit. A hit over and over at all the pain you're feeling, all the suffering you're feeling, all the attacks you're feeling, all the inward dialogue that's negative. It's just a blow over and over that says, behold Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. That's why Paul addresses suffering right after that in Romans chapter 8. Do you know where he goes? And he says literally in Romans eight seventeen that the glory that will be revealed to us will make all earthly suffering seem light and momentary and worth the wait. Every ounce of suffering that we will experience will be light and momentary and worth the wait because we will be in the presence of the Savior who died for us, who rose from the dead, will be with Him forever. New heavens and a new earth. Everything that you could ever imagine being broken will be made right. And we will be with Him forever. That's the gaze that Romans 8 takes us to because he's not indifferent to suffering. He's not acting like it doesn't exist. He looks at it in the eyes and he says, you won't win. You won't be forever suffering. Jesus is forever. He's won the grave. He's won the victory. I trust in him. And so he just tells you, keep looking. Creation is decaying now, but it's longing for the day when it'll be all wrongs be made right. It'll be renewed. And our hope, the hope that we have, will never disappoint. It will not put us to shame. I got a video I was looking at on YouTube that I just want to put up here. I got the jack, this is a beast of a tree. Really need it. And if I look at that, I think this is not going to work. I think this is, you're just going to be hammering here forever. This thing is not going to fall. But this right here is Romans 8 to our skepticism and our doubt. And it's like, I thought it would work. I thought I'd feel better. Nope. Just going to keep smacking. Just going to keep smacking. God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. Oh, but wait. I still feel pain. Okay. Smack it again. God is for us. That'll do it. And what happens? Over time, the heart topples. That's crazy. That's crazy. And I just want to invite you into this moment. The moment that says, allow your heart to fall into the arms of a Savior who suffered in your place. Give all of your emotions, all of your pain, all of your skepticism, and take it to Jesus. Don't act as if it doesn't happen or it doesn't exist or that your doubts and your skepticism aren't there, but keep hitting it over and over and over with God is for us. 
And if God is for us, who ultimately can be against us? Whoever is against us, they will not win. It will not have the final word. God is for us has the final word. And it's not only a word for the end, it's a word for now. And that's what takes us to last week's passage. Last week's passage in Romans 8, 28. For what's it say? For our God, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. How do we know that God is working all things? If you are a follower of Jesus today, you love Christ. You do. You know that love, it feels like it goes up and down, but you love Him. If you cannot say, I love Him, then you should wonder if you know Him. Because when He comes in, you love Him. You know you're a wreck. But you love Him. And He loves you. How do I know that God is working all things together for good? Because those of you who say, I love Him, that journey did not begin just a few weeks, a few months, a few years ago, that journey began before the foundation of the earth. The Bible says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What's foreknowledge? It is God intentionally setting his affections upon you. Before you did good or bad, before the foundation of the world, He knew you intimately, setting His affections upon you before all things existed. And the one who set His affections upon you, He in that love determined your future. And those whom He foreknew, He predestined to look like Jesus. So when he says he's working all things together for the good of those who love God, what's the good? That you're going to look more and more day by day, as Pastor Ranjur said last week, glory from one degree of glory to another, you're going to look more and more like Jesus day by day. You're going to keep moving one degree of glory to another. That's the purposes that God is working and will work. And those whom he set his affections upon determine their future, he called. He called you to wake up and your dead heart was awakened and you saw Jesus for the first time and you loved who you saw and you said, I love Jesus. And that hatred of sin and that affection for Christ caused something to happen. You were justified. You were justified. You should be condemned and instead you get the righteousness of Jesus and you're able to walk right out the courtroom fully right with God. And those who are justified, you will be glorified. But this passage says you are glorified. Your future is secure. And one day after another, one degree of glory to another. Friends, we know God is for us because He's always been for us. The point of this passage is what God begins, He completes. He doesn't run out of energy. His affections didn't go up at Calvary and then start diminishing so that now, heck, we're 2,000 some odd years away from the cross and so, man, His love must be really low. No, always increasing. He is for us. He is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? That means anyone or anything that is against us will not prevail. It will not win. It will not uproot our faith. It will not stop us from growing more and more like Jesus. And instead, just like Satan, you think about this, just like Satan, with all his attempts to stop the church and to crush Jesus' plans, the very thing he did to uproot God's plans, as Satan thought it, was the very thing that God used to fulfill his plans. 
He was against Jesus. Stirred up the crowds. They crucified Christ. It was through the crucifixion of Christ that God fulfills His plans. That's how the suffering in our life is working. It looks like it's going to uproot everything. And I can tell you from experience and from walking with many of you, suffering is horrible and painful and we wouldn't wish it on our worst enemies. But it has helped me know the love of God for me in ways that I never would have known have I not walked the road with my Savior. The pain helps me know the intimacy of my Father. The pain helps me know the sacrifice of my Savior. The pain helps us to be and to look more and more like Christ. What Satan chooses and wants to do, use to uproot your love for Jesus, your love for the church, your love for others, your desire to kind of throw in the towel, God is going to use in His people to get Him to the end. Because what He begins, He always completes. That's what He does. So, dear friends, we need to say it again together. God is for us. Let's say it together. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can ultimately be against us. Romans 8 is one blow after another blow that says God is for us. And I pray that it causes the hopeless heart to topple into the loving arms of Jesus. The despairing heart to let go of darkness, to let go of bitterness, and to find Jesus as a safe refuge. So how in the world do we know God is for us? Because Romans 8 tells us. How do we know that God is for us? Because just take the phrase itself. God is for us. Look at Romans 8.28 with me again. Romans 8.28. It actually says a lot about God. When I read that, I think of, I think of how great it is that He's working all things in my life to make me look more like Jesus. But this is saying a ton about God Himself. Look at it with me. Those who love God. The Bible tells me that the only way people love God is that God first loved us. This tells me God is love. It says that God works all things together for good. What does this tell us about God? That God is working. He's a working God. What does this tell me about God? That God is calling people to Himself. That means right now, in 2022, He is saving people. He is overcoming their hard-hearted resistance and He is bringing people out of darkness into light. He's saving people. He is a foreknowing God. He is a predestining God. He is a God that is forming us into the image of His Son. He is justifying people and He is glorifying people. It's telling us who God is. When I watch the Carolina Panthers, I yell for them, I cheer for them, I usually get really angry at them because they're not winning. It's really frustrating. But I'm not intimately involved in their lives. <laughs> if you ask a Carolina Panther player, is Sean for you? They don't care. What's that mean? God is not the cheerleader on the sidelines. God, this God who is for us, He is a Father who is with us and knows us and is constantly doing all of these things for us. His for us-ness is a working for us. He is loving us. He is caring for us. He is an advocate for us. And friends, this actually right here is one of the greatest shifts in my entire Christian walk. Here's what I mean. When I was growing up, Christianity was a little more about me. I would read the Bible primarily to see what I could get out of it. And it's not bad to see what you can get out of the Bible. I think that's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. But that was pretty much like 98% of kind of my reading, it felt like. What I could get out. My needs, what God could do for me, 
temptation to get frustrated at God when he didn't deliver. And then, in my journey, I was awakened to see that the hero of the Bible is not me, it's God. The Bible is a yearbook about God. You look for his picture all over every page. And the more I began to see that, I began to see that God is most passionate about God's glory. I began to see that the cross was not simply about me. I began to see that the cross was about God being God and punishing sin in a just way. That the cross was so that God could be just and justifier. I began to see God as centered on Himself, existing for His glory, that He was sovereign and good and wise and all-knowing. But here's what flipped the script for me. For years, I almost felt like I could not say God is for me. Because that would make things way too much about me. You see the journey. Sean obsessed. Now I'm God obsessed in a really good way. But just like 2020 through 2022, we're not very balanced. (laughs) The scriptures are, God is fully for God, and with all of God's majestic, glory, sovereign, goodness, all-wise, all-knowing, all-present, with all that makes God glorious, He is for you, and He is for me. The for usness of God is the step that we need to take to fall deeper into the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Some of you have come through some pretty legalistic background. A legalistic background in the religious world usually looks like this. You believe that God saves you, but you believe that you must keep yourself. And the emphasis in legalistic churches, the emphasis is really heavy on what you must do for God. Now, don't get it wrong. There's tons of passages in the Bible that says, persist in your faith. Examine yourselves. Repent of sin. Love your neighbor. But the emphasis in these legalistic circles is on what you must do for God. And what is remarkably absent is what God has promised to do for you. Not just on Calvary in one moment that gets you in the door, now you got to keep yourself. The Bible tells us God is for us, present tense, right now, always for us, just like He was when we came into the family. What happens is when people hear over and over, we must do this, we must do this, they feel like it's solely dependent upon their ability to meet certain standards, and honestly, the burden is too heavy. It's a requirement that you can never stand up underneath. All the passages that put pressure on our will are necessary, but they are not sufficient. They were never meant to stand alone without the for usness of God. And here's what I mean God's people will never lack God's supply to walk in God's ways. I'll say it again God's people will never lack God's supply to walk in God's ways. Let me say it another way His mercies will always outpace whatever we face. Legalism, God saved you, you got to keep yourself. Christianity, the Bible, God saved you and he will supply everything you need to do what he has asked you to do and he will keep making you more and more like your son so that your joy deepens, your hope gets fuller, peace happens more and more often until you see him face to face because God is not just for you at one moment, he is always for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? God is for us, friends. 
How do I know that God is for us? Because God is for us. That's the point. And finally, how do I know that God is for us? Because the cross tells me so. The cross tells me so. Let's look at the verses again. I'm going to give just a a little twist on the translation just to try to draw out some of these words, the meanings of the words. So I translated this. Therefore, what shall we say about these things if God is for us, who can be against us? If He did not keep His own Son from dying. The literal image here is He has all the power to stop the death of His Son. And if He let His Son go, And did not keep his own son from dying, but for us. That's the way the the verse reads. There's this emphasis of for us. The exact same words that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It says, if he did not keep his own son from dying, but for us all, he handed him over. Some translations, he did not spare him. He handed him over. How will he not also with Christ graciously or freely, without restraint, nothing holding him back, give us all things? I know our brains might be willing to shut down here, but I just pray you stick for a few more minutes. Because if he killed heaven's favorite, for you and for me, then you can know He can do anything that we need to get us to the end. There was this sense of He handed Him over, an active releasing of Jesus into the hands of lawless men. He had the power to spare Him and He did not. Anybody who's a parent The most excruciating act as a father would be to let your child go into the hands of lawless people. To let them just experience attack. It's one thing if you didn't have the power to stop it. It's another thing altogether when you know you do. Let it sink in. He gave up heaven's favorite for enemies like you and me. For rebels. Why would he do that? Why would he give up his only son? The emphasis in the passage, he gave up his own son. For you and for me. Why would he do that? So that he could make us children. He can make us children. That he could be just in punishing sin and we could be justified and forgiven. If he gave up Christ and raised Jesus from the dead, then the Bible says if we are with Christ, if we're in him, he will graciously give us everything that we need. Jesus is saying, Paul is saying about Jesus here, that if the Father gave up Christ and did the hardest thing, then He can do the easiest thing that's give us everything that we need to look like Jesus. If He did the hardest thing, then it's nothing for Him to make us into the image of His Son and get us to the end. He can do that. It almost looks in this passage like he loves Jesus. He loves us more than Jesus. You got to like wrestle with that. He, he killed his son so that we could be forgiven. We don't deserve that. He was against his son so that he would never again be against us. 
and he raised his son because unlike we want things to really be binary, he was fully for his son and he's fully for us. And the only way to bring salvation to broken, this broken world was the death of his son. And the only way we will get to the end is through suffering. And that suffering will make us more like Jesus. You know when you watch movies? When you watch movies, if this character over here just kind of dies at the beginning, you don't really even think much about it. It's just like, okay, that just happened. But what happens when the main character, the character you've been watching for an hour and a half, you get the backstory. You watch people attack them and then your heart starts wanting to fight for them. You see their wrestles behind the scenes. You know what that's like. Movies are brilliant at this, of getting your heart all up and wound up on this character only to have maybe at the end the character die. You've had that happen, where in movies it makes you sick to your stomach. The person you got so attached to it's amazing how cinema can do that, how it can kind of capture you and bring you in, and then by the end, like you're sick at your stomach, or maybe you're crying, or maybe there's just all kinds of yuck happening because you just saw that. The Gospels are the backstory to Jesus, and as you watch his life, you see his joy, you see his compassion, you see his perseverance, you see his love, you see his power, you see his ability to heal, you see his sacrifice. And now Romans 8 tells us, and then you see him die. And that's meant to make you sick, and it's meant to make this, this convulsion almost happen in the stomach. But then you see him raised from the dead. And you know that if God is for us, like he was for Jesus and can raise him from the dead, then when God is for us, nothing can stop His love. Nothing can stop His love. All things are done in love. What's another summary of God is for us? You are loved is the summary. You're loved. Stop telling God you're not loved. Some of you who battle with self-condemnation, you just want to tell everybody how you are not worth His love. I just want you to tell you the cross says otherwise. When you are tempted to rehearse your suffering or when you're tempted to rehearse your goodness, when you're tempted to rehearse anything that would make you dwell on somebody against you, Romans 8 says, focus on the cross. The cross tells you over and over that you have never been more loved and therefore God is for you. Our view is too limited, friends. Sometimes if we our kids don't obey. People criticize us. The marriage falls apart. We wonder if the finances or the bills will get paid. We look at all of these things. And Romans 8 tells us you're looking in the wrong place to see if you're loved. Because every time you look at those things, you're tempted to think I'm not loved. Romans 8 says, look at the cross, and there you will know you are loved. He did not spare his own son. That is always bigger than whatever you face. He loved you. He rejoices over you. You are not hard to love. He finds you altogether lovely. And if he is for you, anything that is against you will not win out. If he is for you, who can be against you? And so this passage should end. Behold, look what manner of love the Father has given to us that we would be called children. God is for you. Know you're loved. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, I ask that you would overwhelm us with your goodness and your mercy. And Father, if you love us, I pray that you would make us as a church a people who are for one another. A for us, God creates a people who can be for one another. 
And so, Father, I just ask. I ask that, Father, you would help us to know. How do we know that you are for us? Romans 8 tells us. How do we know that you are for us? We focus on your nature, that you are always working for us. How do we know that you are for us? We look no further than Calvary. And so, Father, now I pray. I pray that with all the struggles that we might face, our hearts are filled with hope and joy and thanksgiving. And I thank you for your church. We need one another to point us when we feel so tired and so unable. So unable to focus on anything else. I thank you for so many in this church that have sent texts of encouragement or just in our times of interaction have just shared how you have encouraged them. Father, I pray that we would encourage one another that God, you are for us. Thank you that we are able to be together. Thank you that we're able to sing. Thank you that you are in our midst. Thank you that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Right now, just minutes of silence. I pray that the Lord has stirred in your heart and I ask that whatever he's doing in your heart that you would either confess sin that might be keeping you from believing that he loves you or you would confess faith. You would confess that he does love you and just saying those things might change your heart. Maybe there's something that he's pressed upon your heart one step that you need to take and I just pray that you will remember that he will always give you the supply you need you will never face any of that alone I'm praying for the anxious person in this room that they would know they don't have to try to control their circumstances anymore because God is for you I'm praying for the despairing person in this room that they would know that they don't need to be hopeless because there's hope in the fact that God is for him. That, that you will always, God, supply the needs of your people. Your mercies will always outpace whatever we face. Father, I pray that what you do is you just cause to well up in our hearts that you're for us. And you will supply all that we need. So right now in this moment, let's just take a moment, be still with the Lord, and then we will sing about the glories of the Lamb of God.